Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to check in with Allison Williams, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. She's a senior analyst, covers all the big global banks, the investment banks, the asset managers. I want to start, Allison, I don't want to start with Credit Suisse because it's too depressing for my former employer, and that thing is just a disaster. City, great article in the Bloomberg Terminal, City adding maybe doubling staff in Paris. And in this article, they talk about more and more investment banks adding more and more staff to Paris. Now, it's a great city one of the world's all-time great cities. I get it. But is this just another movement of people post-Brexit from London to the continent? I believe that is um, the case. And we did hear this you know, from, from a lot of bank managements in recent years about some of the changes that we've we've been they'd be making um and i think that this is just sort of a, a continuation of moving some headcount out of london so what is it when, when you think about these big global investment banks allison you know the jp morgan's the cities of the world where is london in in the global picture i mean there was a time back in i'll early- tell you where london is it's in a lower tax regime than paris yes that's i mean true. are the most important players really going to move to a place that uh you know threatens like 90 percent <laughs> income tax it it just seems like too much of a problem for me paris is a great city to visit i adore the french <laughs> but um you know they're just too unpredictable in terms of how much money they're going to take from you if you live there well, I guess that's that's perhaps the viewpoint of the employees, right? But I think from the bank's perspective, you have to go where the clients are. And if the clients want their trades to be done in Paris, um, you know, that that's that's really the movement that's happening. I mean, I remember five years ago when the clients wanted their trades to be done in Frankfurt and bankers said, like, we'd rather – uh, work at a gas station <laughs> in London than go to Frankfurt. I, I remember when Goldman Sachs was pushing people to move there. I'd go to Munich. And I, uh, I think, like, Hugh Pill went there, and then his his administrative assistant refused to come with him. <laughs> like, nobody wanted to go, go to, to Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I guess Paris has a bigger draw with the Louvre and stuff. Um, yeah, I think Paris has some baguettes. Draw. Yes, exactly. You know, but some, I just can't wine. imagine that the that the big money really goes there. Alice, London, Allison, London is still the financial hub of Europe, isn't it? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So it's not to say that uh, it, it's just it's you know it's all sort of I guess degrees or it's all relative, um, and just you know with Brexit you just have to have a presence in more than one place, um, and so you know. Some might have picked Frankfurt, and some might, might pick Paris. Or but if, if, if you're Bloomberg, you doubled down on London and built the most amazing office building in the city of London, which is smoking hot. True, cool. but that was before Brexit. Yeah, I but we point doubled, out. we're still headcount <laughs> booming there. We, we doubled down, fingers crossed, and then <laughs> oops. Um, l- let me ask about Credit Suisse, because I was pretty amazed uh, that David Harrow sold the rest of his stake. I mean, this if, if anybody had a, a solid long-term backer, it was Credit Suisse and, and David Harrow, and now they're gone. Does that mean it's over? I mean, it, obviously, it's, it's, it's not a good thing to lose, you know, your biggest backer for a long time. 
and in some to some extent it may explain you know some of the weakness in the stock over the past couple of months obviously there's there was a lot of reasons kind of going into the capital raise um but i think that this just goes to again i think the, the key concern is that there has to be some type of steadying I, you know, I, and I saw that Harrow had made comments, I believe, in in the FT at the end of last year when he had cut sort of his stake in half, just talking about the fact that, um, you know, other banks were generating capital. You know, Credit Suisse is still in a loss position. Um, it needs to show sign of steadying, and it just, it just, one could argue, you know, with some investors that the sort of lack of Catalysts to the upside are stopping them from getting in, but for a very big investor to get out, I think that really does, you know, sort of, sort of cast doubt on what's next for this bank. So, Allison, I look at the holders uh, section here on the Bloomberg terminal. HDAS gives you the stockholders. The Saudi National Committee, you know, the the Qatar Investment Authority are the two big shareholders. Is there a point where the Swiss government? needs to get involved in terms of ownership? Yeah, their their capital ratio is one of their strengths at the moment. They are going to obviously eat into that with some of the losses that are expected in, in 1Q and 4 this year. Um, so I think that that does give them some breathing room. I think, you know, you know, it's the, the fact that there are other, the two anchor investors now are, you know, these sovereign, sovereign wealth funds, which have, a, you know, generally can have a much longer t- uh, investment horizon, um, just maybe speaks to the fact that this is sort of a longer-term story. And and I guess to the point I said before that there are sort of no near-term catalysts, and I think that investors do want to see some st- sign of stability, um, especially in terms, especially in terms of the wealth flows. I think that's that's the most important. We. You know, management talked about some green shoots. You know, they said that they've been talking to a lot of clients, et cetera, et cetera. But you really need to see that turn. You need to see that the, right. the client confidence has steadied. All right, Allison, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Allison Williams, she covers uh, the global investment banks, all the big banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Anna, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, you were out front. We really appreciate being the beneficiaries of that call. Hang on. She also said there was a 100% chance of a recession. Really? Well, we I might think, get there. I think yeah. this year. Because it's not fair, Anna, to say there's a 100% chance of a recession at any time in the future. You'd have to you've got to you've got to you've got to time stamp it. And in fact, just to be be clear, it's the model, our model that says it's one hundred percent recession. So our holistic judgment has been um, in between seventy to eighty percent chance of recession, and we're talking about twelve months ahead. So we built this model that we uh, we wanted to tell to 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 tell us be able to t- send a signal whenever recession probability spike for each of this month for this year, 
And the model says that uh, recession is uh, would spike to 100% probability starting in September of this year. It's been st- sending a pretty steady signal for is most still, of the year. So it's year. still saying that. It's still saying that. In fact, when we updated it uh, using January's data, it is even even we also rely on a lot of other models like yield curves. We looked at various yield curves, including the one that uh, Chair Powell likes to use, which is the forward spreads between three months and eighteen months. That actually saw an increase in recession probability in January because all the yield curves inferred it further in January. So, so um, but our. You know, overall judgment is that there's, of course, 20 to 30 percent chance at least of no recession this year. But as you said, it's just just a matter of time. If there's not one this year, then it's just been pushed back to next year. (laughs) When you say your model, are you talking about chat GPT? (laughs) No. (laughs) In fact, if you ask chat GPT. To predict anything, they like to take uh, they they like to uh, not answer directly. They say they're not a prediction model. On the one hand, and then on the other hand, right. it's learning you know how to speak like an economist. Anna, so you know when we think about a, a, a recession scenario, you know it's it's awful hard to do if you take a look at the the, the labor market there. How, how do, and we're going to get some more jobs data uh, this week. How do you square up uh, kind of this strong, really strong labor market and? Again, concerns about the economy going forward. Yeah, so we looked deeply into this. First of all, the very strong January report. You have to remember that it's actually it's a story not about firms busily hiring left and right. It's more of a story of firms retaining workers because if you look at the non-seasonally adjusted figures, it's all like – decrease in hiring. It's just that the decrease in January is less than the the decrease in the typical January. And so second, um, we were looking at um, these war notices, which is that, uh, you know, the Labor Department in this country require employers to file these layoff warnings if they are going to lay off workers. And a lot of these high-profile layoffs that we read in the news back in January, you know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Goldman, we know that tech sectors has already laid off 100K at least of workers. How come it doesn't show up in the initial claims? Well, the answer is because most of these layoffs have not even become effective yet. By law, the employers have to give at least 60 days notice. And in New York, in fact, employers have to give 90 days notice. So many of these announced layoffs will only be translated to actual layoffs where people will go file unemployment claims in March. So we're expecting that uh, there, there will be some tick up in initial uh unemployment insurance claims. So how many, if you get 100,000 layoffs, um, how much does that translate into in terms of claims for unemployment insurance? Because we've heard that, only anecdotally, I should I should point out, but we've heard that people who get fired, especially from tech, have like two or three job choices uh, where they can go instantly. Yeah, I've heard that too, anecdotally. Um, but I, I think data-wise, so I, I think that an answer is it will be less than the 100K that's an, an announced layoff. And furthermore, anecdotally, I've heard that tech workers might not be um, eligible for an unemployment claims because they're foreign or they haven't worked for more than six months. So, But I think the point is that the data we have been receiving just do not reflect the softening that had indeed happened in December and January. And we just have to wait for a couple of months to see. And I think the Fed is aware of this. And furthermore, there's the weather effect. And, you know, we try to quantify it. And, and uh, you know, there's also a Fed paper that tried to quantify it. And it turns out that weather tends to Warm weather tends to boost employment in the months that the weather is warmer, and this effect is especially pronounced in spring. So if we have a very warm spring, then we're likely going to see a a stronger employment too. But this effect is going to wash out throughout the year. So with seasonal adjustment, the way that it works, we have stronger employment uh, now, seasonally adjusted if weather is warmer, but later in in the year, it will be more negative than usual because of that, you know, many right. of the hiring was pulled forward. So I also don't affect, don't uh, uh, expect the strong employment to last. Furthermore, I, I don't want to, you know, go into weather forecasting, but that's, right. you know, forecasting economics is part of my job and, and it is related to weather. And, you know, 
the weather people are now saying that El Nino is likely going to start this summer. And so, you know, we had a warm winter yep. here in, 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 the, in the East Coast because of, of El, La Nina. But El Nino, what it brings is a lot of precipitation to the south and flooding also. So we are we're probably looking at a second half of this year with a lot of, you know, weather precipitation that could okay. dampen economic activity. So, Anna, given that backdrop, you know, now we have in the marketplace uh, people looking at, you know, the Fed watcher saying 50 basis points. Might be back on on the table uh, at perhaps the next meeting. Is that something you guys are looking for? Uh, that's not our baseline, and I, I expect that Powell will say that everything is on the table. They certainly don't want to rule it out. Um, if we do have a very very strong CBI report and a jobs report, say, I mean, of course, if a jobs report of 400k this Friday or a CPI print of you know core of 0.6 percent. Um, would I think that would put 50 basis point on the table as a as a baseline? But right now, 25 basis is still our baseline. But I think Powell will just leave the door open for anything um, in his testimony this week. What do you think about long and variable lags? You know, how long are we talking about? I know Danny Blanchflower. Uh, I think in commentary to the Bank of England said he works typically on 18 to 24 months. Um, is that still accepted as how long and variable how how long the long and variable lags are you know this is definitely the debate happening within the central bank circle if you believe that the lags are short and i think there are evidence to show that the financial conditions are now the lags of financial conditions are very short as of three months only three to six months then it means that the tightening from the past fed um hikes has already peaked and that would be a case for further, more a longer path, steeper path of uh, Fed rate hikes going forward. But I also think that, that there's evidence that there's some part of monetary policy that has very long legs, and that, that has to do with, like, equities and dollar. Those have uh, 12-month legs still, but certainly the financial conditions part have a very short leg. All right, Anna, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, always appreciate getting your thoughts. I want to talk about to me this china story has really captured my um has really fascinated me captured my attention uh this morning and last night as i was reading it um the uh, disappointment with economists about their five percent growth target i find interesting um not only because you know we would be jealous of a five percent growth target but also i think it means more than just a slowdown in uh, your global growth expectations, uh, it means also a slowdown in your inflation expectations. We haven't seen the reopening provide us with boosted prices for uh, commodities, uh, metals, oils, etc. yet. I want to bring in Everett Millman. He is the chief market analyst at Gainesville Coins. Uh, we talked to him about, obviously, silver and gold coins and uh, virtual digital coins as well. But Everett, just in terms of the, uh, uh, of the commodities impact of the reopening of China, in terms of you know, demand from the Chinese after the end of the COVID zero policy, have you seen a big move in prices across the metals that you watch? Uh, not, not yet, actually. And I think that you've kind of hit the nail on the head with the uncertainty surrounding China's reopening. Um, we've also seen some pretty big intraday volatility for crude oil prices and the U.S. dollar. So all of that does weigh on the commodity space, and it simply makes the landscape more uncertain and more difficult for producers to, to kind of plan ahead. So um, I think all of that is at play here. How important is that part of the world when it comes to gold, for example? I know India is huge, right? Um, what about the Chinese? Do they contribute to price moves in gold, both for industrial purposes or uh, for you know consumer purposes? Certainly so. Um, China not only has a major over-the-counter gold market uh, that mainly is dealing in gold jewelry, but it also, with the Shanghai Gold Exchange, does exert more pricing pressure over the gold market than it has in the past. And we do often see uh, kind of seasonal flows that when prices are falling in the gold market, um, China steps in as a major buyer, not just 
official purchases, not just the government or the People's Bank of China, but also just the general public. Um, so as time has gone on, we've seen that China has more and more of an influence over the price of gold. And I do suspect that's one of the reasons we've seen the gold price hold up, even though uh, broader markets have offered better opportunities as gold has kind of trended sideways in 2023. So, Everett, I'm looking at global commodity prices here on the Bloomberg Terminal, GLCO. Um, I look at uh, silver really gets my attention, off 11.5% year-to-date. What's going on in the, in the silver market? Mm, yes, and not only is silver down, but um, in terms of like the broader precious metals complex, it's usually a somewhat bearish sign if the silver price is lagging gold, and that's essentially what we've been seeing lately. Uh, as far as the, the weakness we've seen in silver, there's usually – a strong floor beneath the silver price based on the all-in sustaining costs, kind of the cost of production from silver miners. Right now, that's around $20 an ounce, just below where, where, where we've been trading. But I think an interesting thing to keep in mind is that most silver that is produced each year doesn't come strictly from silver mines. It is produced as a byproduct of other mining operations, mainly nickel. So in those cases, the all-in sustaining cost for those miners is actually far lower. Uh, it's closer to about $14 an ounce. So I would not be shocked to see if there is another sell-off in silver uh, that we could see prices fall back near that cost of production, which I think is below uh, what most market participants are actually expecting. Is there still a concern that some of these markets are manipulated I don't need to I don't mean to drag up some kind of zero hedge style conspiracy theories but in in silver I mean it was true right the Hunt brothers got busted and there are major Wall Street banks that have settled um on these kind of uh manipulation probes is there concern among traders that there's still a problem with with the silver market or others uh, I would have to say that, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire in these kinds of cases. And uh, although, you know, the credibility of such claims is obviously dubious, as you pointed out, um, in the same way that foreign exchange markets, like forex trading of currencies, has some of those problems, um, I think the same is true of silver and gold, that uh, because it functions sort of like money, you do see manipulative trading behavior that, Although unethical, it, it certainly uh, it doesn't rise to the level of criminality. All of those cases you mentioned have been uh, settled out of court. So um, it's, it's at least a narrative that does concern some investors and, and kind of push them away from getting involved in the gold and silver markets. But um, I think the best way to think about it is that it would be very similar with really any, any currency trading. Um, you can manipulate currencies up and down relative uh, to the trading volumes, and similar things happen in gold and silver. Even Bitcoin? <laughs> uh, even Bitcoin. <laughs> I think it perhaps has the, the highest uh, probability that that kind of uh, thing happens. And we need to keep in mind with the fallout from the FTX scandal, uh, traders on those, on those crypto exchanges were entering into contracts for, for Bitcoin trades when there was no Bitcoin being custodied. Um, so you can call that really supply manipulation of Bitcoin as well. What's the, if we step back, Everett, what's kind of the big global commodities call of, of the moment right now? Well, I think it's the, the call right now is uh, probably sideways until the end of the year because it's going to be very dependent on the reaction function from the Fed and central banks. Um, higher interest rates, they're usually not great for gold, but they, uh, they do tend to drive copper and industrial commodities higher. So I think Everything is going to depend on central bank policy. Do we get higher interest rates for longer, or is that you know once expected pivot going to come sometime in the second half of this year or perhaps next year? Um, it's all about interest rates right now. And the gold call? I mean, as we head into what some expect to be a recession, do you want to buy gold into that? I would say so, but perhaps the gold bulls shouldn't get too excited, uh, gold will be kind of caught between those two forces of... It yields um, nothing, you know, and we want to protect ourselves in case the world collapses. Correct, correct. And preserve, <laughs> you know, preserve purchasing power and in the event that, a, you know, a, a local currency collapse. So just 30 seconds, Bitcoin, yay or nay at this point? 
Uh, right now, I think Bitcoin is at least looking better than the other cryptos. Uh, but of course, uh, regulation and the amount of bad press that the crypto space gets generally, um, I think it kind of ironically, it boosts Bitcoin's uh, appeal, if only because it is the one kind of most noteworthy or most trusted crypto. Uh, but the rest of the space, I think, is obviously uh, in, in pretty bad shape right now. All right. Good stuff. Everett Millman, uh, Chief Market Analyst for Gainesville Coins. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I want to get to our next guest, Dan Salmon. He's a partner and analyst at New Street Research. He covers the, the U.S. He leads the U.S. Internet team there. He recently joined uh, New Street. Before that, a long career at what I know as Bank of Montreal. The market now knows as BMO Capital Markets, and Dan's been covering the Internet space since really the inception of the Internet. And, Dan, thanks so much for, for taking the time to join us. Um, I know you've recently ramped up uh, coverage once again here at New Street. What's your 30,000-foot call for these internet names here they had such a great run you know over the last decade but now there's definitely some some headwinds for the sector and and for some individual names love, love to get your perspective yeah no thanks for having me on guys um i'd say thirty thousand foot view so we launched our coverage at new street right here at the beginning of the year uh i think january 3rd was published date and you know look our title of our original industry report was uh Borrowing from the uh, the famous Warren Buffett line, right? Be greedy when others are fearful, uh, because you know what we saw was the sector trading essentially at decade lows, right? That we hadn't seen it trading uh, this 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 cheaply relative to the S and P 500 for for over 10 years, and and look, as you said, lots of good reasons for that. Uh, Post COVID hangovers, certain. Uh, more regulatory and policy pressures than we've seen in the past, and, and probably this, this big idea of increasingly, you know, amongst the big players, uh, you know, and this crosses more into to some of the other stuff that, that I don't cover, like Apple and Microsoft, but, you know, these mega cap tech stocks starting to swim in, in each other's lanes. Uh, a little bit more and compete with each other. So, you, you know, we definitely sort of frame, you know, U.S. Internet as it's it's not a pure growth sector anymore. It's more of a GARP sector now. And we can talk a little bit more about the shift to focus on profitability in various groups. But uh, but it's uh, but we thought it was uh, still very attractive to look at these names over a longer term basis, uh, notwithstanding that lots of fear around macro and recession that could impact them as well. But uh we just found the valuation too attractive. It worked really well out of the year. They pulled back a little bit out of earnings, but uh, still find the group attractive for long-term positions. What What is uh, Web3, Dan? Do you <laughs> – is it more than just like marketing or a whole bunch of Gen Z kids push to pretend they have a career? Is it really something that we're going to finally understand at some point and be able to sink our teeth into? So it's a good question. I, I, I mean, I think it's a series of things that uh, whether you go from cryptocurrencies to virtual reality and augmented reality, and we can you know talk about metaverse, um, 
you know, there's even some elements of, uh, you know, just, just businesses like, like Twitch and Amazon, for example, you know, video gaming and game, sort of the next level of, you know, watching streamers and things like that, sort of creating this sort of digital environment much more significantly than versus what we think of as Web 2.0, which was, you know, not something as immersive, still something on screens, right? If Web 2.0 is probably mostly the web on a mobile screen, you know, Web 1.0, was it on a desktop screen originally? Like I said, these are more virtual spaces uh, and, and things like virtual currencies. I still think it's pretty tough to pin it down to sort of one specific thing right now. But, uh, but, but I think a few of those things are floating around. And, and look, I think notwithstanding that crypto's come back a lot and, and had its own challenges, I, I mean, I do believe over the long term that, you know, things like virtual reality and augmented reality will be more significant. But, uh, yeah, probably not with a great big tidal wave of impact in the near term just yet. Hey, Dan, I see that you have buy ratings on, on the two big digital advertising plays, Meta Platforms and, and mm-hmm. Alphabet, Facebook and Google for us old timers. Um, definitely some <laughs> macroeconomic headwinds there. There might be some regulatory overhang. What's your call on, on those two names? So, you know, this goes back to, like I said, what our positioning was for the sector to start was we wanted to be more aggressive. And, you know, what that means in our space, you know, even though Internet is a consumer space overall, it's relatively cyclical in general. You know, when you want to be greedier, you you want to get along more the digital advertising names where they are a little bit more cyclical. And so, you know, Facebook, I'm, I'm an old timer, I still mostly call that to you, but Meta was was one name that we had functionally upgraded as we came over to the new shop and and set up here at New Street. And, you know, and, and, and Office, it's worked, worked really well to start the year. Um, you know, basically that was our view as we started was that, you know, especially still the, the fourth quarter, we saw this with fourth quarter results quite choppy. My expectations are still really for the first and second quarter to still be pretty choppy uh, in the in the digital ad economy, but that. Uh-oh, sounds like the telecommunications for this Internet analyst are not up to snuff. Yeah, telecoms are yeah. still as bad as they were in the 90s. Yeah, so a producer um, once told me, um, you know, cell phones are like the bane of talk radio. Yeah. You know, the old landline. I don't have a landline. And it's no bueno. Yeah, I don't have a landline either, actually. Um, but I, my cell phone has, I think, never dropped a call. But the cell phones of people who call in for radio or television <laughs> drop every three or four tries. So I, I don't exactly. know what the problem is. In any case... That was I was hoping to ask Dan yeah. about um, what happens when you put AI in your name. Does yes. that automatically get <laughs> a buy a, rating? Yeah, it doubles your multiple, I guess. Um, um, Dan Salmon, uh, he is a partner and analyst at New Street Research. Hopefully we can get him back on get him back at on some sometime. point. Yeah, Maybe he, we can sp- get him in the studio. Where's he from, Eric? Where's well, he calling it? Yeah. All right. Oh, All right, wait, Dan. we got him back. Yeah, we got Dan. Dan, back. we got you back? Okay. Hey, Dan, you there, bud? Well, Eric keeps saying he's, he's there. there. Can you guys hear me? Hey, ah, yes, there, right. there. We can hear you, but you're cutting All out right. intermittently. But you should come up to the studio, right, 731 Lexington Avenue. You can take the five right. or the six. Oh. <laughs> we'll do that. I'll do that properly next time. Um, I think also the, uh, the the magic or lack thereof of Wi-Fi calling is letting us through. But uh, but but long story short, on the big you know ad-driven names. I think the risk to those names is there is a deep extended consumer recession and where you look where employment levels are right now, unemployment is still relatively low. I know we're seeing tons about layoffs from these companies and other tech companies, but across the economy, uh, unemployment is still pretty low. So we think the risk of an extended consumer recession is still you know, manageable and that you know, we'd want to have exposure to online advertising if that's the case. All right, Dan, thanks so much. Next time we will get you in the studio here. We'll feed you some snacks. It's all, I'll tell you, it's a trip worth making. Dan Salmon, uh, partner and analyst at New Street Research, longtime uh, media analyst on the street at BMO Capital Markets, uh, talking about his new coverage on the Internet. Still pretty, I tell you, he's got seven stocks under coverage right now. He's got five buys, buys on Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, Snap, and Match. And he's got neutral on uh Trade Desk and Netflix. He's got a neutral on Netflix. So interesting. So we'll get Dan back. All right. I still think, you know, we have, we just got through earnings. Earnings matter. I know that. But it just seems like this market continues to be held hostage 
by the Federal Reserve and, and what it will do. I wonder what the really smart people are doing these days, like the quant people, the people do like math and stuff. Uh, yeah, I like to stay away from that as much as I can. Mahmoud Narani joins us here. He's co-founder of Quant Insight. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, he's based in London, but he's in New York getting into trouble this week. So we appreciate him taking a few minutes. So, Mahmoud, I wonder how you guys at a Quant shop, yeah. how you guys, how did you do last year in 2022 when a 60-40 portfolio got crushed? And then how do you look at 2023 and going forward? So last year it became, so what we do is there are lots of conflicting stories and narratives in markets and it can get quite confusing. What we do is we ask the data what's going on. We have algorithms that interrogate all the data about the economic data, what the Fed's price to do, stress in China, the dollar, energy prices, and, and it finds the pattern. And the pattern last year, February, March, was very clear and that was real rates was the driver. The daily moves we were seeing in equity markets were all explained by shifts in real interest rates in the U.S. Real interest rates went up, the market went down. As we got towards the end of 2022, the relationship started to shift. And the algorithms were telling us, actually, rates aren't that important anymore. What matters now is the real economy. So 2022 was all about the Fed. 2023 going in was, okay, what impact is the Fed going to have? We had, of course, everyone screaming about the inverted yield curve. Recession is imminent. We haven't seen that recession yet. And one of the reasons the stock market's doing okay is because it's keying off the real economy data now and the credit data. And actually, if you look at the credit cycle and you look at credit spreads, they're not screaming distress yet. So the equity market's okay. What's really interesting is in the last three weeks, the machine is telling us that actually rates are starting to matter again. But there's another complicating factor that's entered the equation in the last two months, and that's China. Yep. And what the machine is saying is that we've got two forces pulling in different directions. On the one, Fed terminal rates continue to rise, bad for equities. Number two, a lot of the price action in equities is keying off indicators of China GDP growth, copper prices, basically China indicators, and that's driving markets higher, particularly in Europe. That's why we're seeing Europe outperform the U.S. Are you concerned about the China news we had over the weekend that they only, uh, and I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> expect growth of 5%? I guess that's relative to what they would normally uh, forecast low for a post-pandemic economy. Um, on the other hand, it doesn't seem like such horrible news to me considering they won't, won't be driving inflation that much either. Yeah, I think, you know, what you have to look at with China is, is the swing. They went from around annualizing 2% real GDP growth to now 5% real GDP growth. And the way China is impacting is not only the demand that's coming out of China, which is hitting Europe a bit more, Europe's a bit more leveraged to China growth, but the impact that China's having on commodity prices. And the, pro the big problem for the Fed is that China growth is creating another massive problem for them. Because the more China stimulates, the higher commodity prices go – uh, that's not good for headline inflation. It'll feed through to wage growth and to core inflation, and it's forcing the Fed higher and higher and higher all the time. Personal view, I think we're headed above 6% terminal rates. Hmm. Okay. All right. That's uh, – you know, it's interesting. 2-6% or above 6%? I think if China continues to grow, above 6%. Wow. All right. So That's given, a call. That's a call right there with a capital C. And what do you do with the backstop of that type of interest rate call – what are you guys doing with your capital these days? Well, step one is park it in short-term cash. Um, step two, don't be long the bond market for the time being. Step three, wait for the buying opportunity that'll come because we know that 6% plus rates is going to drive a recession. In the ECB, 4% plus rates is going to drive a recession in Europe. Equity markets are very focused on earnings recession, so equity markets will head south, but I think it's second half of the year. And what's caused the huge delay is China. Right. By the way, just to cap it off, BOE is five because I like four, five, six. That works for me. Yeah, that sounds about <laughs> right. Yeah. So in the city of London, with all the financial people, the ones that haven't left to go to Paris, which we have a story about that because of Brexit, you're not consensus, are you? You, it's, you sound more bearish than uh, we, the average person they sidle up to with consensus. the pub. We don't, I, we don't key off consensus. We ask the data. We're quants, remember? Right, <laughs> right. And so, I mean, do you really have money? Do you, like, what's your cash position today relative to maybe where you normally like to be? I'm, you know, around 80% cash. 
Uh, wow. Dude. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> defensive. Yeah. It's been good. Well, look well, at well, when are you going to know um, yeah, when right. to put that cash to work? What's What are some of the signs that you or your model yeah. um, is going to you know suck off the Bloomberg terminal and go, <laughs> oh, now it's time to buy? Credit spreads. All U.S. Right. high-yield credit spreads. So we had the default data for January, U.S. bankruptcies. It was significantly higher than Q4 last year. A couple of days ago, we got the data for February. It was higher again. Um, credit spreads are still reasonably unworried. When credit spreads start to turn higher, and that will be implying higher default rates in the U.S., that is going to be the catalyst for equity markets to turn south. Um, and when cr- implied default rates get towards the 6 7 8%, which is pretty high and a lot higher than the 3% now, that will be somewhat close to the bottom of the equity market. And so that's, I mean, you're keying really off of a, a, a material recession. Is that how you guys think about it? Well, given the current regime, yep. yes. Okay. Interesting. So any sense, like, do you have a sense of timing? Is this a 23 event? Is I this think it's late 23, and what's delaying it, because let's face it, if you asked everyone a year ago, Fed's going to go to four and a half or five, yes. right? What do you think is going to happen to the U.S. economy? Everyone would have said, utter disaster. Well, Q1 real GDP now casting in the U.S. is around one and a half percent positive real GDP growth. We haven't had that disaster. Bond market's been, you know, sitting there. So will a six percent or six and a quarter percent, will that push us into I, a I real think disaster? It, I think it will once the China impulse has faded. Okay. But, you know, the China data today, again, growth a little bit slower than expected. Okay, not good for the global economy, but the silver lining is perhaps less inflationary pressure, pressure globally. Is that enough of an offset? Or? I don't think it is because there was a really interesting piece of research from the San Francisco Fed recently that split out the current core inflation into the U.S. into its demand-driven or cyclical component and its structural component. And they found that 40% of current core inflation in the U.S. is actually structural. So... What this means is it makes, life, it makes life much tougher for the Fed because it means they're going to have to squeeze the demand side even more to compensate for the fact that there's this structural – and that's driven by demographics. Baby boomer retirement, mm. you know, offshoring has become onshoring, more expensive labor at home, geopolitics, free trade is sort of dying. We've moved to secure trade, managed trade, fair trade. There are a lot of structural factors that is driving core inflation in the U.S., and that makes the Fed job even harder. So it's well, the good news, Mahmoud, is that Jerome Powell is going to testify in front of the smart, well-informed, capable people of the U.S. Congress over the next two days. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure they're going to do everything they can to help solve the situation. What is the fiscal answer? Well, I don't think the U.S. can really embark on any kind of fiscal expansion. Uh, and one, you know, one, one question, and particularly kind of in the retail investment. But can they clamp down? Are they partially to blame? I mean, is there well, yeah, some they change? Overdid, they overdid the fiscal stimulus. We know this. And that, that took the inflation genie out of the bottle. Um, and the, the Fed is left dealing with the, with the issue. And the issue is particularly acute because if you look at the amount of government debt, not just in the U.S., but all developed economies, over this whole COVID crisis, it has increased yep. dramatically. Yep. So the problem for the Fed is they cannot afford to lose their inflation-fighting credibility because if they lose the credibility, then the bond market is, you know, global bond investors are going to demand much higher yields. We saw what happened to the gilt market when there was a credibility issue with yep. the Liz Trust government. And the U.S. just cannot, and the Eurozone just cannot afford yep. long-term government bond yields to rise, which means that Fed has to be 100% clear to the market that their inflation-fighting credibility is strong. This is a good call. I'm glad you made the trip over from London. Yeah, me too. Well, please come over more often. <laughs> yeah, please. Right, we'll go Do over there. Won't you take us to your favorite pub. Mahud Narani, Deal. co-founder of Quant Insight, uh, giving us his thoughts. All right, right now, let's bring you our interview with J.P. Morgan CEO uh, Jamie Dimon. He sits down with Bloomberg's Ed Hammond. Uh, let's go to that conversation right now. Jamie Dimon, Ed Hammond, right now. Thank you so much. Uh, obviously, we would like to welcome now also our listeners on Bloomberg Radio as well as our viewers on Bloomberg TV. And I should say, we're not sitting down. We're standing up. We're here in Miami. Jamie, great to be back. Great to be with you. Great to be standing. What are you worried about? Great, great to be here, by the way. So thank you. Uh, 
Uh, the, the thing I worry the most about if you go is Ukraine. It's oil, gas, so the leadership of the world, and you know our relationship with China. I mean that that is much more serious than the economic vibrations we all have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. On the Ukraine question that we talked about a lot, obviously, a year ago, very shortly after the war had started, do you think now, a year in, that the West has become sort of somewhat inured to the idea of a conflict of this scale on its borders? And if so, does that worry you? Yeah, no, it, it looks a little bit like people are inured to it, but I think that's a little bit of a mistake. You know, I read a report the other day that you know, when a war goes to one year, it lasts, normally lasts 10. But this is a major land war in Europe, in a free and democratic nation, you know, with hundreds of thousands of casualties already on both sides. And so I think we, this, we don't know how this is going to end. We don't know what direction it's going to take. And, and it's affecting global relationships. So Ukraine, Russia, then it's oil, gas, food, uh, how it's hurting poor countries, uh, and it's roiling trade relationships between America, China, and the rest of the world. So this is a probably the most serious geopolitical thing we've had to deal with since World War II. Do you foresee a future where J.P. Morgan could potentially re-enter the Russian market as a business? I mean, I'm very premature to say. You know, I think if there was a one day, maybe, but it's very possible that won't happen in our lifetime. And you mentioned U.S.-China relations, obviously not at their best right now, uh, particularly post the balloons. Um, I, I wonder what role you see business playing in trying to sort of moderate those relations and, and try and keep them as, as good as possible. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's really the government. The government has to set the rules and figure out what they want to do. And I think it's a fair complaint about government and business that we probably should have started resetting this 10 years ago. And we didn't. I don't like a choir with spilled milk and all that. But going forward, the government, and I think they're doing a good job thinking through what is national security. So think of semiconductors, rare earths, penicillin, you know, certain drugs. What's, what is unfair trade? And then, you know, at one point, sit down and have a very serious conversation with the Chinese government. You know, remember, Secretary Blinken was on his way over there to do that, and then the balloon. But at one point, they'll do that, and business is a peripheral player in that. So I think, I think business will help give advice on how to do things. If you're going to have an outbound investment controls, how do you set the way that works? That's not just a huge bureaucracy. And so, so far, all the conversations have been quite rational about it. I mean, J.P. Morgan obviously has a significant business in China. I'm sure that the government there would listen to you. What are the conversations you have just about sort of trying to, as I say, trying to maintain as cordial relations as possible between the two nations? I mean, look, for us, we're there. And, and like I said, you know, we're, we're, we're basically taking a backseat to an American government in this one. Uh, and we're going to, we obviously have to do whatever the American government asks us to do. And we're trying to engage in a conversation with our own government and with the Chinese government and what those things should be. You know, I'm hoping cooler heads prevail here. But th that, this is why Ukraine is so important. This can cause it to go in a bad direction rather quickly. So, uh, uh, you know, everyone's got to be a little cautious. Talk about our own government. Let's talk about the Fed for a moment. Obviously, uh, I, I just want to talk about the Fed for a moment. I have half a dozen prosaic questions I could ask you about the Fed. I think I know the answer to many of them, so I'll try and avoid. One fairly easy one is, you know, when do we get to say we're landing, be that a hard landing or a soft landing? Sort of when does that begin to occur? You know, forecasting the future is, as you know, very complicated. It, the consumer still has a lot more money in their checking accounts than before COVID. They're spending 10% more than last year, 40% more than pre-COVID, and it looks like they'll have excess money to spend roughly until the end of the year. And at that point, you, know, you can say, is it a little bit of a cliff? Is it a soft landing? And also, QT has not started to bite. That also is going to happen at one point, probably later this year, and that, you know, that's when you're going to know what these things do. But you, we can still have a soft landing. And the other thing about all this economic forecasting is Russia-Ukraine. I mean, that, that can change it dramatically and very, very quickly. Do you think absent Russia-Ukraine, we will have a soft landing? I think it's still possible, but I would I look at possibilities. It's still possible. possible. I think a, a, a mild recession is possible, a harder recession is possible. You know, I think there's a good chance that inflation will come down, but not enough by the fourth quarter. The Fed may, have, may actually have to do more. And I think a lot of things that have happened in the world, think of the bigger trends, are inflationary. You know, infrastructure spending, the IRA Act, uh, lessening trade with you know, certain parts of the world, re re bringing trade back into America. Th those things are all 
Uh, the, the green transition is going to take a lot of capital. So all those things kind of have inflation attributes that are very different than we've been through the last 20 years. I'm going to come back to the consumer point in a second, but last year you talked about in your letter this sort of confluence of three major factors, QT, yeah. the America rebounding from a sort of post-COVID economy fairly strongly, and then obviously the war yeah. as well. You, you talked about them sort of leading us into an unprecedented period. Yeah. How do we get out of that period? Uh, you know, it's, it's diplomacy. I mean, it, that, that's why this is not, you know, we always talk about uncertainty in the economy and the uncertainty. Well, I call it normal uncertainty. The weather is, you know, we know what the weather's like. That's why these things are different. QT, uh, coming out of COVID, uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. I think it's been pushed out a little bit further. I would have thought we'd be dealing with this a little bit sooner, but it does look like some of that stuff is coming to fruition at the end of this year. Russia, Ukraine, we just simply don't know. I, I think it's wrong to see them predict because if you look at the history of wars, they, they've been pretty much unpredictable and how they uh, uh, play out and which ones affect the global economy and how they do. If you look at a lot of wars, they didn't affect the global economy, but they were literally in very small parts of the economy. This is not in a small part of the economy. And, the, and this is a European nation. Uh, it's Russia and it's oil and, you know, major oil and gas supply and food supply around the world. So this is a whole different uh, attribute to it. But then why does the consumer, particularly here in the U.S., remain, as you say, fairly bullish? They're, for over a period of time, their home price has been going up. Jobs are plentiful. Wages are going up the lower end, which I think is a good thing. They've got a lot of money in their checking account. You know, uh, stocks generally been, had gone up for 10 or 15 years. The consumer is, if you look at it today, in great shape. But I'm telling you, that's going to end at one point. It, but even if we go into recession, then the consumer is entering the recession in better shape, far better shape than they did in 08. You know, in 08, when we went into that recession, not only did unemployment go through the roof, but their home prices were dropping dramatically, jobs were disappearing, uh, the stock market was way down. So this one is a little bit better than that. One of the, the sort of narratives that is fairly popular at the moment is that the consumer doesn't like uncertainty. I would even go as far as saying it's, it's, it's sort of one of these false axioms that, you know, that people adopt now, that, you know, when it's times are uncertain, the consumer freaks out, they stop spending, they stop doing the things that the consumer needs to do to keep the economy going. That doesn't seem to be the case here. The consumer's done pretty well through uncertainty, through COVID, through the war, through everything else. So I wonder, what, when we get to this point of, you know, the wallet being hit and the consumer saying, we're going to stop spending, is it just reality catching up with them? Is this some kind of inflection point, or is it just that they run out of money? Everything is distorted by COVID, including, quote, uncertainty. So you, have, you are absolutely correct. You know, confidence, consumer confidence is dropping. But I think their pocketbook trumps confidence. Well, they have a lot of money, they tend to spend it. And they, you see here, like, look at the travel in Miami and the building and the optimism around. If you ask them how they're doing, it's very good. And then they tell you they're, uh, they're not confident about the economy. So jobs are plentiful. Wages are going up. I mean, what, that's what's really affecting them. You know, and they wake up in the morning, they feel pretty good about that. And then they read the paper, and, of course, you can get a little depressed. Is it at the end of this year or towards the end of this year that sort of begins to tail off? It looks, that like, confidence. It looks like the excess cash will be disappearing, and then uh, but the jobs are still there, so you could that's why I said you could have a soft landing. So now, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, obviously, uh, his specter continues to haunt the global elite, and most recently, JP Morgan uh, have been sort of caught up in it. How has that made you feel? I can't talk about litigation, but you should you should know that at J.P. Moore, we got top experts, including some of the best people that come out of the DOJ, et cetera, who review and make judgment decisions like this. And we're, we've, they, they generally do a very good job. But how has it made you feel as the CEO of J.P. Morgan, as a figurehead for the bank? It's unfortunate, but it's life. Um, and look, we're here in Florida. We have to talk about politics because we always talk about politics. Obviously, we're in DeSantis' backyard. What do you make of his, uh, if you like, hands-on approach to business? And is that something you would like to see more of uh, in even higher office? Who's hands-on approach? DeSantis. Yeah. I, look, I, you know, I, I, I learn and listen and read and stuff like that. You know, it's got, it has gotten a little complicated between business and government and stuff like that. But, but you know, anyone here knows that I'm a full-throated, red-blooded, American patriot supporter of free enterprise. So, you know, I hear the complaints on both sides. But, you know, you listen and learn from that. I don't worry that much about it. And we've been, we've loved Florida. We're growing in Florida left and right. You know, small businesses, large companies. We got 
I've got how many total employees we have here. I'm on my way to Tampa. We've got you know major operations there, Orlando major operations. Uh, we're opening branches, and so uh, the mayor just joined us at a small business event we did here. We're very pro pro Florida. And this is long dated Florida. This isn't part of the sort of recent influx of capital into Florida or financial. Yeah world into Florida perhaps? Well, I think they've been great. I mean, you know, if you were running the state, you know, you should be thinking, how can I make this state off good, well off my people? So Florida likes business. They want you to come. You know, you come to Florida, you see the opt-in. Texas is the same way. You know, if, if I was some other states, I'd be thinking about why do people like going to these states? It's their taxes. It's their pro-business. They want better life for the people. It's not necessary some of the policy we talk about. So, um, you know, we now have more employees in Texas than in New York State. You know, it should have been that way, but Texas loves to be there. And when you go there, they're optimistic. They're optimistic here. Pro-American, optimistic, pro-business. No, unfortunately, no. Um, every year there's a, a sort of tech topic to show that we talk about. Last year was the Metaverse, and I think we talked briefly about you appearing in a non-physical form in the lobby of the Metaverse. This year it's, uh, it's AI. Uh, I asked ChatGPT what I should ask Jamie Dimon. I was hoping he would come up with a really smart answer. I wouldn't need to write any of my questions. I could get it to do the whole interview for me. Uh, so, so it didn't, unfortunately. It asked, what would I ask Jamie Dimon uh, about AI and what it meant for the future of investment banking? So uh, AI is real. This is not... Not crypto? That's not crypto. This is a technology which is staggering. We already lose 300 AI. We have thousands of people involved, thousands involved in data, machine learning, natural language processing. We have 200 people in AI research labs. But, and we're already using it to do risk, fraud, marketing, prospecting, and it's the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, to me, this is, this is extraordinary. And the other thing to keep in mind, there's good use, but bad guys are going to use it too. So it's a little bit of an arms race in how you have to use it to protect your company, protect your clients, protect data, et cetera. And we're fully engaged. And the other thing you have to keep about AI, you need to be in the cloud to use the compute power fundamentally that you need for AI. And so that's why the cloud, digital AI, they're all kind of related that way. What was behind the decision to, to ban GPT on the, on the trading floors? It, 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 on company-owned devices, that's way you could do it in your own device. But we also allow people to use it within our own uh, firewalls. So we didn't take it away. It just you have to go within our firewall to use it. And, and it was just for control purposes and risk purposes. There's no wasn't a statement of any time. Before we end up, I, I want to get onto leverage finance. Obviously, that's in large part why we're here to talk about the conference. One of the things JP Morgan's doing at the moment that's very interesting is lending from its own balance sheet, direct lending, if you like. At, at the moment, I think it's $10 billion is what's been allocated. How big can that business get? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's amazing. And this is, when you look at something like this, the, for your viewers, American capitalism, there are 2,000 investors here from around the world, hundreds of companies still inventing ideas and growing and expanding both in the U.S. and, and overseas. It is, it is extraordinary. So direct lending, you know, obviously one of the biggest lenders out there, but a lot of people here are also huge lenders. So, you know, I meet with them all, and, and, you know, direct lending away from banks has become equally in size. They and like to think of themselves as competitors. They're, they're, and they are. Right. You know, that's a lot. But we deal with competitors and collaborators all the time. So we do direct lending, and all it is fundamentally for your viewers, you know, unit tranche, quicker, fl more flexibility in certain types of covenants. Not necessarily cheaper for the borrower, by the way. So you got to look at it, all things. So we've done, I think, 10 billion, 40 deals. We could do a lot more. And, you know, we can work with partners on some of these deals, et cetera, but we'll do what we need to do to compete. It's, it feels somewhat passe to ask you about succession. You get asked about it all the time. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but, but I am interested. You talk a lot about the need for sort of unified responses to global conflict. You talk a lot about things that are needed domestically, whether it's better health, better education, uh, raising wage inequality, uh, or reducing, I should say, wage inequality. It, it seems very obvious that you could go into public office if you chose to uh, when you leave J.P. Morgan. Is that something we can expect? I'm not going to go into public service. I love what I do here. You, know, you mentioned succession. But you I might enjoy it. I, I, I think you should practice it a little bit before you go into it. And I, I mean, I, I feel what I do here is a huge contribution to, to my country, uh, my clients around the world, et cetera. So, uh, and the other thing about succession, you, got, you guys already know who, that we have a lot of potential successors. So you, you can write about it frequently. Exactly. So, you know, I couldn't add to that. You already know. All right. So. Jamie Diamond, great conversation. Thanks great. so much for having us. And with that guy, I'll turn it back to you in New York.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.